Welcome back to the 185th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how some people are now saying they can no longer justify a vote for Biden in 2024, an interesting article about a snafu going on in Virginia, and it could actually cause the Democrats in the Senate to lose their position, and an article talking about how black children are underdiagnosed with ADHD and how it could be a problem if it already isn't one. And, of course, we will end day with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So Biden, you know, he's having a hard time. We've talked about the statistics before on the podcast about how he's losing young voters, how he's use, losing black voters. Now, this article is about the voters that he's losing in a different community, this first one. So do you think Biden's going to have to peel off? Do you think they're going to replace him with somebody else who is more appealing to all these different demographics? Or is he just going to keep on trucking? I think I've asked that exact question before, but I really am curious. I want to know. Throw it down in the comment section and tell me what you think, especially as we've had more reports come out since the last time we talked about this. All right, so the first article, it comes from The Nation. The headline reads, I can no longer justify voting for Joe Biden in 2024. So we talked about, or at least I briefly mentioned, how young people not going for Biden right now. Uh, black people, the numbers are down for Biden as well. Now, these, this demographic, this author, he is Arab-American. And he's talking about how he can no longer support Joe Biden for his position on Israel. Quote, it may not be obvious, but Arab Americans have felt naturally have not felt naturally at home in the Democratic Party. I suspect that our experience tracks that of other minority groups who've experienced marginalization and racism here in the United States. At least since the Clinton presidency, the party's agenda has exhibited centrist status quo tendencies. And for us, the status quo has been a source of harm, an ossified state of indifference to our needs and calls for justice. Uh, I'll pause there. Uh, I think it's a little unfair to say that the status quo is by either side, either party, is directly discriminatory and it's indifference. But I, I guess you could make an argument that the political class doesn't care, which is what they're actually trying to highlight here, that the political class, you know, unless it's politically advantageous to them, they don't really call things out. But the normal citizens of the United States who are in the middle, even on left or right, doesn't matter how far you go, I, I'm pretty sure they have an intense care for most humans. There are, of course, exceptions to every rule. But make sure, you know, he's talking about the politicians here, not the average, everyday um, citizen. At least that's what I hope, because otherwise that, that says something sad about the way that some Americans view their fellow citizens. Quote, and for us, the status quo has been a sort of, I already read that part, I first had serious doubts about Joe Biden when I learned he self-identified as a Zionist. For me, as a Palestinian-American and millions of Palestinians living through apartheid, Zionism isn't a way of seeing the world. It's a political theory that establishes Jewish dominance over the people and land of Palestine and Israel. Or sorry, Palestine slash Israel. Based on a Jewish majority in that land. It seeks to justify unsuccessfully repeated bouts of ethnic cleansing, occupation, inequality before the law. 
Before identifying himself as a Zionist, Biden expressly indicated his support for the outcome of these policies. A Jewish majority state for Jews only, explicitly he endorsed the, the politics himself. So, you can see now where Biden is trying to be a good ally to Israel, where he's trying to back them up, but still, you know, rein them in a little bit. It's starting to hurt both sides of his coalition. You can see it now hurting the Arab Americans who have voted Democrat for a long time, but also some Israel, I would say, people who have transplanted themselves here in the United States, maybe just some Jews who are passionate about Israel. When they hear language about his ceasefire, they're probably not very happy either. And now add those two groups, you know, losing a few points here or there, plus the, you know, young people he's losing plus the black people he's losing yes i know i keep bringing it up but every little chip counts and yes i know it may seem a little what's the word i would use here tasteless tactless to talk about the actual plight of uh, a certain people across the uh, middle east whether it be the israel israelis the palestinians you know it may seem tactless to talk about it and then oh the political implications but it, it's a real world thing that we need to deal with you know it, it demonstrates that joe biden's foreign policy the stances he takes is going to directly affect who vote for him and people while they don't necessarily care about foreign policy that much it's honestly at the center of the debate right now one because of ukraine and then israel in the middle east and the weakness that biden has put out there a lot of people are saying okay foreign policy is more important than we thought and also because on the republican side of the aisle Foreign policy is always a big talking point, especially because it's a big dividing point, especially nowadays, between certain sections of the party. It's kind of like when Rand Paul's on the stage versus Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney doesn't necessarily want to get into more wars, but he's going to easily justify it. Whereas uh, Mr. Rand Paul is going to say, oh, oh, no, 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 we are not having this whatsoever. So when you have these sort of ideological uh, differences and now you see it play out between Vivek and Haley it, this is going to be a serious part of the conversation when it's not just one side of the political system talking about it but it's both sides it even draws more attention to it so now we're directly seeing that foreign policy is being considered and there are certain segments of the population that don't like Joe Biden's foreign policy he's kind of shooting himself in the foot here and I don't even think he's doing it you know oh yeah well we absolutely absolutely are going to appeal to people based on our foreign policy no he's trying to do what he believes is right and it's just ending up to backfire on him, especially with some arab americans who really empathize with palestine so what has the the change been because he talked about how they've normally voted for democrats and the zionist position is thrown off but what what other changes have there been in this arab community that is shifting the vote a little bit Quote, call it maturity or pragmatism born of experience, but over the years I have learned to suppress my deep discomfort with the party's non-progressive politics to vote Democrat and keep a lesser evil at bay. So let's just pause here. He has progressive politics. I want to understand what he means by progressive politics because, you know, there are, I've talked to some very, how should I say, uh, not fundamentalists, but I've talked to some very passionate people who are Arab American, and they totally support Palestine. But when I said, well, okay, can we agree on certain social issues? They're like, oh, yeah, we are, we're so conservative on these. So I want to understand what he means by progressive, because that feels like at least, then again, you know, 
there's no monolith and just because somebody's from a particular culture doesn't mean they hold particular beliefs but from the experience i have on the ground talking to some people it, it feels as though to abide by the uh, tenets of certain parts of the arab community and the especially the ones that follow uh, islam it becomes very hard to have progressive politics and still follow those. But then again, you know, it's just something I'm curious about. I want to know what he means by progressive politics. But uh, that's besides the point. Quote, in 2021, after voting for Jill Stein in two presidential elections, I relented and joined up. Here in Philadelphia, I ran for and won a seat on a committee person as a committee person in my ward. In that capacity, I worked to turn out voters for John Fetterman. I voted for Joe Biden. I have no intention of doing so again next year. The past three weeks have transformed me. I've viewed shocking, nauseating videos documenting the genocide underway in Gaza. I've seen the neighborhoods I grew up in eliminated totally. I cannot describe the pain of viewing my extended family suffering through state-sanctioned terror. I cannot describe the horror they're experiencing, their awareness of their dehumanization, and the agonizing knowledge that they have been abandoned by a cynical world. Now with Gaza in total darkness, literal and metaphorical, I find I dread what I dread the worst is that I am justified in expecting it. And I mean, those are those are powerful words. Those are those are very, very powerful words. They really hit you in the heart and they resonate. And when you have these sort of people experiencing things like this, when they know what it's like to be over in that location and they see it happening again, just like it happened when they were possibly growing up or seeing the same cycle play over and over and over, it can be extremely frustrating. And yeah, I, if if I was a person like this and had personal experience with something and then I saw a president going out and doing something that I believe perpetuates that thing that I had to experience that I didn't enjoy when I was growing up, of course I wouldn't vote for him. I would not throw my weight behind him. And this is the problem Joe Biden has. He is a person who is playing a delicate game of politics while still trying to be a great, uh, how should I say, principled president on some of his key issues. And I'm sorry to say, but if you're playing a delicate game of politics and you actually care about the polls, which I'm not saying Joe Biden does. I'm saying he's following his heart at this point. Now, if he changes his opinion drastically, maybe it's because of the polls. But it's hard to be a person who is truly principled versus someone who follows the polls. And I just hope that if Biden believes that this is the right way to go, that supporting Israel is the right way to go, and that's the foreign policy he wants to pursue, pursue it. Just expect these sort of things and don't fumble when you hear stories like this and statistics coming out that you're losing these demographics. And I'm not saying Biden is. And I'm not saying that I agree with everything Biden's doing. I do agree that we need to put our weight behind the, one of the sole democracies in the Middle East. Does that mean that everything they do is 100% justified? No. But we do need to support our ally, especially when they are a critical linchpin to our foreign policy in the Middle East. No doubt about that. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden's going to do what Joe Biden's going to do. And if he looks at these poll numbers and he gets scared and he backs down, it, or at least if he backs down and the polls are telling him this, maybe you could say there's a correlation there. But I hope that he sticks true to his principles. He seems like a, a pretty, or at least he seemed like a pretty strong-headed, uh, proud individual when he was still in the Senate. Let's see if that track record persists or if he's going to have to back down and fold. He didn't do it with Ukraine. 
but we'll see with Israel because it is a lot more thorny and it doesn't necessarily appeal to his base like Ukraine did. All right, so let's jump to our next article that comes from Just the News. The headline reads, Virginian Democrats may lose control of state Senate as members' residency under question. So, yeah, um, when I read this, I was like, what? R really? We're, we're going to have a, a problem with residency here. They're going to possibly get somebody off of the Senate. And, you know, when I first read it, I was like, okay, this kind of feels like a little bit of republic activism. I'm not saying that the claims aren't true, and I am not saying that they are not warranted. But it, just, it felt like, okay, so they were looking for a way to overturn this decision. They've been researching this for a while. They've been doing the, I don't want to say oppo, but they've been doing the legwork for a while to get information that could possibly, you know, overturn this senator if she got in, or at least disqualify her from running in that location. And now that things have solidified, they have the information and they are throwing it out there. But uh, the first label I gave, because I give labels to each section, I named this one oopsie so let's uh let's give it a read quote virginia democrats may be facing issues retaining control of the state senate as a senator who won her election last week is now under question for potentially misrepresenting her residency democrats are slated to retain control of the virginia senate 21 to 19 but because virginia requires candidates to live in the district they are running to represent given the current controversy surrounding state senator gazla hasmani or hisme i'm sorry if i mispronounce her name the balance of the legislature may change. Hisme, a Democrat who has served since 2020, said on her campaign paperwork that she lived in an apartment in North Chesterfield in Center District, Senate District 15, which she won with 61.9% of the vote. However, four neighbors filed a complaint stating that Hisme lived in Middleton. And I'm sorry, I do live in Virginia. I don't know that town by heart, so I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that as well. Outside of the district. And they provided a spreadsheet showing that she had passed, they had passed her home 61 times in October to document her residency. While Daily Wire reported Saturday, the documentation also includes photos and notes that her car was present at the residency late at night and early in the morning. So, one, maybe, you know, she, uh, has a, another car maybe she has a detail i don't think she has a detail because i don't know why state senators would get a detail but there's could be a totally rational explanation here maybe she swapped cars with the husband i don't know but it, it does seem a little bit odd also i want to know what they intend to do here because if they actually disqualify her then that means that there's probably two options one the person that was running against her instantly gets in or they redo the primaries, or they put up another candidate, and then they redo the election. And if a Democrat won in this district by 61.9% of the vote, is it actually going to change anything? Are they actually going to not vote for a Democrat again because it's not uh, his me? Especially when the redistricting shuffled her constituency around a little bit, and she's not necessarily talking to the same people that she used to be talking to when she got elected the first time. So she had to do a lot of groundwork. So I don't think it was just loyalty to her. I think it was probably more loyalty or, uh, how should I say, admiration for the party than her specifically. So I don't know if uh, this attempt to get her gone is going to actually change anything. That being said, if she lied about where she is living, 
which I'm sure plenty of politicians do. They, you know, they have a house, they rent out an apartment, they live there for a little bit, or they live there for a good amount of time. I'm sure lots of people do this. But if she was caught doing it, she was lying, she wasn't there enough to prove that she is a resident of that district, then yes, we can't stand for this. I mean, that's like me moving to Missouri a month before the governor's race and saying, oh yeah, I'm a resident of Missouri and uh, you should elect me for governor. No, I have not spent any time on the ground there. I have not learned the Missouri culture. I have not resonated with the people. I haven't actually been in the community and directly felt the implications of policy and what needs to change. So no, you should be living where you are running because at the end of the day, you need to understand what it's like in that community. Same thing if it's a state, you need to understand what it's like in that state. And also, we shouldn't be, I mean, it goes even larger. It applies to UN. You're not going to appoint a South African minister to the represent the United States at, at the UN because at the end of the day, does he have a full understanding of United States culture? Is he a United States citizen? So come on, come on. We, this is seriously something that just needs to be addressed. Will it actually change anything? I don't necessarily know. But here's a, a little bit more about what's going on. Quote, even if Hosmi was found to be residing in Ch her Chesterfield apartment, she may have still committed a felony by concealing that she owned a home in Middleton or on sworn election forms. Real estate records show that she, her and her husband have owned the home, which is worth more than $600,000 per Zillow since 1999. It is not listed as being up for sale. Hazmi represented the former Senate District 10, which includes Mithelton. But after redistricting this year, her home was put in District 12, and she decided to run in nearby District 15 where she apparently rented an apartment to appear to have an address there. Republican Glenn Starver Jr. won District 12, which includes Mithelton, and 55% of the vote went his way. Republican Hayden Fisher, who lost to Hizmi in the election, said he plans to stop the election from being certified. Uh, end quote. And, you know, now th that sort of language and that sort of, oh, they stole it from us kind of mentality, that... That is frustrating. It's sad to see that we're still on that. But also, if there's a legitimate claim here and she is not actually a resident of the district, I said it last time, come on. It, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And the question then becomes, is he going to actually win in a runoff? Or a, is he just going to get directly appointed? If he does get directly appointed, that puts the Senate... Uh, actually, hold on. There's, there's one quick quote that describes what would happen if the Senate goes back to a 2020 split. If Hizmi is found to be ineligible to hold office, she may be replaced by a Republican, which would put the Virginia State Senate at 2020. So 20 Republicans, 20 Democrats, and give GOP Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears the ability to cast tiebreaker votes, just like Kamala Harris said at the beginning of the Joe Biden presidency. <laughs> She's disqualified. That means I ran unopposed as a matter of law, he said. And this is talking about Mr. Fisher who is disputing the fact that uh, she was not actually a resident. Uh, quote, there's no question whatsoever that she does not live in the apartment. She definitely clearly intentionally lied on that form, and she does not reside in the district, so she should not represent it. I mean, pretty straightforward argument. He's appealing to the people of the district. Hey, are, are we really going to let someone who doesn't live here represent you at the end of the day? We'll see how this one plays out, because at the end of the day, uh, at first, it seemed that the Democrats were going to keep the Senate, but the House, uh, the Republicans were going to keep the House of Delegates. Then 
well, they kept the Senate, but then they also got the House of Delegates, and Glenn Youngkin's there as governor. No one has a supermajority, so it's kind of going to stall some things. But if this can shift how things operate a little bit and then put Republicans in control of the Senate, maybe things could actually get done. Some proposals can get through. It doesn't have to be completely stalled in the Virginia state uh, legislature. Then again, I mean, some people wouldn't necessarily mind if things are stalled because, you know, while I was living in Virginia, very seldom did I feel the impact of the government on my life that much. Uh, very seldom did I see things or hear things that were completely outrageous to me. Uh, you know, then again, wasn't in the business world where a lot more regulations are a lot more pronounced and you can find them on a daily basis. And there are plenty of things that I didn't notice but it's not as though I felt an overwhelming uh, change in my lifestyle due to some sort of legislation that's being passed. So the government seems to be pretty removed from uh, Virginians' lives, at least when it comes to putting new things on the books. And honestly, if this keeps them from putting more new things on the book, no matter what side they come from, you know, if it's limiting government, sure, be okay with that. But if it's anything that increases government in any way, shape, or form, I'm okay with it stalling out. I also don't live in Virginia anymore, so not like it directly affects me right this moment but you know who knows may go back to virginia beautiful state beautiful place families there so on and so forth but the point what i'm getting at is if they're stalling it's not necessarily a bad thing i mean when government can't get too much done it doesn't have to be the end of the world i mean at the end of the day if you don't feel them in your life in my opinion that's not a bad thing and if they're not able to intrude in your life more because they can't do anything what that's not a bad thing but that's just me. That's my libertarian streak, you know, coming out nice and strong on that one. And that is small L libertarian, not big L, you know, not the party. It's the, you know, the ideology or uh, even that, you know, I would say the lifestyle. I, I think the libertarianism is more of a lifestyle, honestly. Sorry, I don't know why I went a little Trumpy there. But my point in saying that is, uh, you know, I'm not aligned with the libertarian party, but there is a certain libertarian streak in me that says, hey, Government, can you just can you just leave me alone? And if they can't pass legislation and they can't intrude in your life, I think that's a good thing. That was a really quick way of saying that whole rant that I just did. But uh, thank you for listening for a little bit. So our last article comes from Truth Out. And the headline reads, Black children, especially males, force alarming gap in ADHD diagnoses. So when I first read this article, I was... I'm going to be honest, I, I wasn't surprised that there was an underdiagnosis of ADHD. I know plenty of people in my life who have ADHD or at least have certain symptoms of it, and they've never gone uh, diagnosed at all. And then also when I heard that black kids were not being diagnosed either, and there actually there's a disparity between the diagnoses of uh, black kids and white kids, that also really didn't surprise me. I'm I don't know what else to say, I, but the it, the information behind it and some of the quotes that they have here in this article are very interesting. I think they're worth talking about, and maybe we can actually it can enlighten some things so we can actually make some changes and address some of these issues. Quote, as a kid, Wesley Jackson Wade would have been set up to succeed. His father was a novelist and corporate sales director, and his mother was a special education teacher. But Wade said he struggled through school even though he was an exceptional writer and communicator. He played the class clown when he wasn't feeling challenged. He got into trouble for talking back to teachers. And now the 40-year-old said he often felt anger that he couldn't bottle up. As one of the only black kids in predominantly white schools in upper-middle-class communities, including the university enclaves of Palo Alto, California, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. 
He often got detention for chatting with his white friends during class while they only got warnings. He chalked it up to his being black. Ditto, he said, when he was wrongly arrested as an 8th grader for a bomb threat at his school while evacuating with his white friends. So he wasn't surprised that his behavioral issues drew punishment. Even as some of his white friends with similar symptoms instead started getting treatment for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So you can see here that what they're trying to imply is there is an inherent bias that certain people who in the system are looking at uh, black students versus white students and they're just assuming that black students are more rambunctious or they're uh, more disruptive and that's probably racism if it's being apply to one race but not the other and then also you can see that okay no it's just a behavioral issue on his part rather than symptoms of ADHD that these other white students are being uh, treated for at the end of the day and I would argue maybe that that's a hundred I'm not disagreeing with that just so we're clear but I would argue maybe the solution isn't actually diagnosing in this case him with ADHD, but just being more strict on the, the white students and not letting them get away with their behavioral issues and try to blame it on ADHD. Maybe their parents should actually, you know, hold them accountable and say, hey, at the end of the day, you have ADHD. We're not going to put you on meds. You're just going to have to deal with it and figure out a way to live life without uh, this Adderall or, you know, doing certain different medications just adjusting your lifestyle and you may be thinking wow alex that, that that's a little harsh don't you think and i'm gonna tell you as somebody who has adhd now let's be clear it's not a severe symptom like some of the kids that you see nowadays who really do have terrible adhd i also know some parents who have kids with terrible adhd and they don't give them medication they're doing the natural approach which is you have to find a way to supplement some of these adhd issues that are presented because of the way that your brain is wired as somebody with adhd who was very very opposed to taking any form of medication by the time i found out there are ways to live with it there are ways that you can redirect that energy and then come out on the other side not feeling like you're all over the place that so you can actually uh, put the attention where it needs to go and be successful without taking medication and like i said my cases not as severe and i'm not trying to say oh i have adhd so i am the authority on this but this is my opinion as someone who has dealt with adhd who has found some ways to mitigate it it's not perfect i, I do get distracted sometimes in conversations conversations go in totally weird directions rather than 100 percent staying on topic those symptoms still present themselves but at the end of the day, there are natural ways to deal with this. And one of the natural ways to deal with it is to not blame the ADHD when your child's being rambunctious, but to hold them to account and say, hey, you got to get yourself under control. And it's sad to see that black students are just, they're getting that, hey, you need to keep yourself under control treatment, while the white students are getting away with their parents saying, oh, no, no, yeah, it, you know, Johnny has ADHD, or the teacher saying, oh, possibly he has ADHD rather than holding them to the same level of account. And I don't necessarily, let's be clear, the article is going to argue that, hey, we need to treat them all for ADHD with medication or all with the understanding that they have ADHD. I say the inverse. Yes, ADHD is a thing, but also hold everybody to the same level of account. And when you're not doing that, that is still preferring one group of people to the other. That is still being biased to one group of children than the other. It could be totally unconscious. It could be the stereotypes that have been built up over time. There's no doubt about that. I'm not calling it outright racism. 
I'm saying it's a lack of applying the exact same standards to everybody, viewing everybody in the same light. So uh, there's an interesting quote that I want to grab here for the last little section, which talks about the uh, differences in diagnoses and the, the different numbers of students who have been diagnosed in each population. Quote, it's been long known that black children are underdiagnosed in ADHD compared to their white peers. A Penn State report published in Psychiatric Research in September studied the extent of gap, the gap by following more than 10,000 elementary students nationwide from kindergarten to fifth grade through student assessments and parent and teacher surveys. The researchers estimated the odds that black students got diagnosed with neurological conditions were 40% lower for them than the white students, with all else being equal, including controlling for economic status, student achievement, behavior, and executive functioning. For young black males, the odds of being diagnosed with ADHD were especially stark, almost 60% lower than for the white boys in similar circumstances, even though research suggests the prevalence of the condition is likely the same. And yeah, guess what? We're all human at the end of the day, so it's not like one particular ethnic group is going to have a higher likelihood of having ADHD, or may maybe, okay, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe there is something that I don't know, but it just it feels... On the surface, now we're all human beings. ADHD is something that affects a lot of people's brains. Uh, it affects human brains, not white human brains or black human brains or Asian human brains. It doesn't affect, you know, most of our brains are pretty darn similar. We've had millions of conversations over the years about, oh, there's this difference. And no, a brain is a brain and ADHD affects a brain. So when we know at the end of the day that it affects everybody, but we're seeing different diagnoses levels, it is an interesting question as to what's going on and maybe it's parenting style maybe some parents in the black community they're like no 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 they have the alex approach let's put it that way they're like no you're going to push through this like hey you can get a diagnosis but we're not going to get you meds we're not going to treat you differently you're going to grow up with it you're going to deal with it and you're not going to use it in a way that uh, oh well i have adhd and i'm not trying to say every parent does that a lot of parents say hey we're going to get you LBD, but you still got to push through this. You can't use it as an excuse. But maybe it's a mentality difference in the communities. Maybe it's because the certain communities just don't have the resources to go get the diagnoses. There are obviously lots of different things here. But I, like I said, I think the solution is acknowledging people have ADHD, telling them to adapt and deal with it, and not pampering the kids and applying the standards in school the exact same way to each and every person. There you go. Done. Simple. It's an ideal in simple. It sounds simple. I know it's a lot harder to do than in actuality, but I hope we can get to that point where we view it that way because it's seriously something where we need to change the whole conversation, in my opinion, about ADHD. We need to shift the entire narrative around ADHD and stop saying it's uh, you're neurodivergent. No, you are a person who thinks differently. I know neurodivergent and think differently, practically the same thing. But by giving it a medical label, it can be used as a crutch and excuse. No, you think differently. And guess what? At the end of the day, people that think differently have to do things just a little bit differently in order to assimilate into society and to be functioning people. But guess what? You can do it. You can overcome anything if you really put your mind to it. All right. Let's go to our daily delight, which comes from boing boing. If you suffer from cute aggression, yes, cute aggression, a cow might be your pet of choice. So have you ever wanted to cuddle something really, really, like a little bit too hard? Well, 
maybe you need a cow. Quote, if you suffer from cute aggression, a cow might be the pet of choice, at least according to Lancey Evans, a.k.a. Farmer Lancey, a cattle woman who runs a farm in Hillsborough, Ohio. And, you know, so cows, they may look like they're only farm animals, but trust me, they can be very cuddly and adoring. Quote, in this funny video, she describes cows as just big dogs and introduces us to her cow, Snow, who is the perfect animal to take out her cuteness aggression on. She demonstrates how she can squeeze Snow and kiss and hug her as hard as she wants, and Snow is just here for it. End quote. And if you want to check out any of today's articles or you want to check out any of the cute or funny videos from this one or any of the other articles from today, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And you can find the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday, less scripted, more off the top of the head, or talking about things that I've been uh, trying to write about, things like that. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.